You're listening to That You Might Know, a series in the book of 1 John preached by Pastor Rick Dressler at Maple City Baptist Church. For more information, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Thank you for what we have heard and experienced uh, thus far. Thank you for the scriptures that have been read, the songs that have been sung, the lessons that have been taught. And now, Lord, I pray that as we open your word, that you and you alone would be pleased and glorified by what's said and spoken today. Spirit of God, we need you. I pray that once again you'd work in the midst of each and every heart here this morning. Help us to listen. Um, on purpose, with intention. And Lord, I pray that you'd give me great freedom and liberty. I pray that the message that you've given by your word would be conveyed in such a way that you would use it to speak to the hearts and lives of every man, woman, and teen in the room this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Take your Bibles, if you would, and we're going to start back in 1 John, where we've been, 1 John chapter 2 this morning. First John 2, verse 14, may not be on the screen because it's not part of the whole sermon, but this is where we've been now for several weeks. First John 2, 14 says this, I've written unto you, fathers, because you have known him that is from the beginning. I've written unto you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. We, we have been here now, this, this is part five, okay? And I have to tell you, at this point, there is no end in sight. So we're going to be here for a little bit. We're just diverting somewhat to talk about the fact of being overcomers in Christ. John writes to this church, and he's writing to this congregation saying, this is who you are in Christ, you have overcome. And we have spent the last several weeks speaking about the fact that we are to overcome temptation, and that's where we'll be again this morning. I want to make a f- couple, few, a few comments this morning as we begin the text. Some will be reviewed from last week, but then we'll get into the new material this morning. Let me begin by saying this. Jesus Christ is a complete Savior. Complete. He saves to the uttermost. He is a complete Savior. He does not merely take away the guilt of a believer's sin. And you you didn't just hear what I said. He's a complete Savior. He does not merely take away the guilt of the believer's sin. This morning, understand, we cannot burden guilt. We cannot carry guilt. We all have a past. We all have things from our past in our life that we wished we did not do. We wish we could take it back. We have history. We have brokenness. We have sin. And I want you to know something this morning. No matter who you are, when you come to Christ, the guilt of that sin is gone. It's gone. It's glorious. Who the Son sets free is free indeed. We are not equipped to deal with guilt. None of us. 
And God knows that. And through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, all those who come to him, who repent and turn and receive him as their Savior, he cleanses and wipes away all the guilt. My brother and sister, that is glorious. It's glorious. I don't have to beat myself up over and over again. I don't have to revisit what I used to be and what I've done. I am free. Well said Newton when he said, Well may the accuser roar of sins that I have done. I know them all and thousands more. Jehovah knoweth none. None. We are free. Jesus Christ is a complete Savior. He does not merely take away the guilt of a believer's sin. He does more. He breaks its power. He breaks its power. My brother and sister this morning, we do not have to be what we once were. He breaks the power of sin. He has saved us for a purpose. And it's not just to exit this planet someday, which is really the wrong idea of heaven. Heaven is where God is, and someday God will rule and reign here. And we who know him will be with him in a body. And so that's not the, just the end game. God has saved us who know him for a purpose. And that purpose is found in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. God has saved you, he has saved me to be holy. First Peter goes on to tell us, but as he who called you, which is God himself, is holy, so also be holy in all your conduct. It is written, be holy, for I am holy. We just finished the book of Hebrews a couple months ago. And the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 12, he says, listen, you and I are to strive, to, to strive for holiness. Talking to believers, we strive for holiness. We work, we labor. That's the goal. That's what we're working for. For without which no one can see the Lord. And so he's called us to be holy. Believer in Christ, it's incumbent upon each and every one of us to strive after personal holiness, to be distinct, to be separate, to reflect Christ. You should know this morning that for all of humanity, we were created for a purpose. We were created to reflect the good, loving, kind creator of all. To receive from him, to fellowship with him, and to reflect that love and goodness out to one another. That was our design. That was our purpose. Which means that every human being, no matter who they are, where they come from, what they possess, the color of their skin, how frail or strong they are, they all have dignity, value, and worth. From the womb to the tomb. Because we are image bearers of God. But now listen to me. This very God took on flesh 
and walked among us and showed us what it looks like to live the life that he designed us to live that can be lived in his power and his presence. We are to reflect this Jesus. If I could sum up what holiness is in just a small, bite-sized thing that we can sort of get a hold of, it's to look like Jesus. Do we reflect our Savior? Are we known for a life of love, peace, joy, patience, gentleness, self-control, forgiveness, kindness, And Facebook is an exemption for all these things. Is this what we're known for? He has called us to be holy. And now as we we contemplate that, we have a reason now to engage in the battle against temptation. Because it fouls us up. It gets us off course. We do things that don't please him. We are to strive, and so we fight against temptation. And what we want to do is we want to come in line with our position. When God saves an individual, they are set apart. They they are set aside. They're, They're literally holy. They're saints. We think of saints as someone who's been dead for a thousand years. A saint, listen, Paul speaks to the Corinthian church. Good church or bad church? Bad. Really bad. You know how he addresses them? To the saints in Corinth. Why? Because in their position, they've been set apart. They've been saved. God says, you're mine now. But our position must line up with our practice. Live with our purpose in mind. And so, we've been dealing with this topic of temptation. Uh, We've reviewed ad nauseum. So, last week, we gave you the answer on on the, the, the next step. And it's this. What's the answer? Matthew chapter 26, verse number 41 this morning, the words of Christ. Jesus says, Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, I don't want to talk about the second part of that verse because he's he's talking specifically to Peter, James, and John who are falling asleep as he's in the garden. But I think for many of us, our flesh is weak as well. He says, watch and pray. The word watch means to stay awake because of the need to continue alert. So we want to fight temptation. We long to be holy. So Jesus says, okay, watch. Stay awake. Let me again say it. Stay awake because we need to be alert. Uh, Our two oldest sons, went off to school, university in Wisconsin, like north of Green Bay. There is nothing north of Green Bay except some small school. And we would drive through Michigan across the Upper Peninsula to get to their school. And so our youngest would drive with me, and we would take the trip, and at night we would always travel. And I always said to David, David, you have one job as I'm driving from, you know, 12 at night until, whatever, 6 in the morning. Watch. Stay awake. Why? Because there's nothing up there but deer. They're everywhere. And all you have to do is make sure your eyes are open and any little eyes you see in the dark, you need to tell me. Because we could be in real trouble. Watch. Be alert. There's danger out there. These are the words of Christ. It also makes us think of guard duty. If you're on guard duty, you don't fall asleep. Because... You can be court-martialed, of course, 
But the other reason you don't fall asleep is because there's danger out there. And Christ is talking about the spiritual battles that we have, the idea of temptation, and he makes it clear that for every one of us, we are to watch, to stay awake, because the need to continue alert. In John Bunyan's great allegory of the Christian life, Pilgrim's Progress, he talks about Christian, the main character, on a journey. He's accompanied by a companion named Hopeful. And as they're on this journey, Hopeful gets to a spot where he's, he's exhausted. He's drowsy. He can barely keep his eyes open. And here's what Christian says. Remember that one of the shepherds bid us beware of the enchanted ground. As you walk through this area on the journey of your life, the enchanted ground is dangerous. And he says, therefore, let us not sleep as others, but let us watch and be sober. In essence, what he's saying is, this is not the time to sleep. This is a dangerous place to be. So watch, be sober, be alert. May I say in all love and kindness this morning, brother and sister in Christ, in the Western church, we are sleeping. We are sleeping. We are in a state of slumber, and it's dangerous. It's dangerous to us, dangerous to us spiritually, and it's dangerous, dangerous to us physically. And the question this morning is, are you sleeping? Are you sleeping? You say, well, you can obviously see me, and only three of you are. But I mean, you know, are we sleeping spiritually? I I read a message by Spurgeon, not exaggerating, 30 years ago. And the message by Spurgeon was um, the danger of sleeping was called the state of slumber. And I was thinking about this idea of watching, and I remembered his sermon, four points. Let me give them to you, because he, he makes the analogy of how we sleep physically and how we know from this it's dangerous spiritually as well. He says, when we're in a state of slumber, number one, there's this idea of insensibility. It means we are unaware of what's happening around us. Some of you folks, you can sleep through a storm. Some of you fathers are lying and you act like you can sleep when a baby's crying. (laughs) But we're insensible. We feel nothing. The world around us is going on and we're completely unaware. I don't sleep like that. I I hear everything when I sleep. But but you understand, when you're out and you're just gone, you feel nothing. And maybe we should just gauge ourselves quickly this morning. Um, Have we moved to a point where we feel very little? Christian, do you remember when you first got saved? Like, Like, do you remember... Do you remember your heart being broken and convicted of sin and seeing Jesus in the beauty of who he was and realizing God was pulling and drawing? It's like, oh, I need him. Do do you remember that that sense of he was all? 
Do you remember what it was like when you first trusted Christ to pray and to really pray and to long for fellowship and knowing him and just a sweet hour of prayer to be before him and to listen and to love and to read the word and to see what was going on? Do you remember what it was like to worship in those early days? And I'm not talking about just music, but to worship in community and in the word and in the preaching. How excited you were to be there. Do you remember what it was like when you had lost loved ones? And you wept and you prayed and you begged because you knew they were lost without Christ heading to an eternity without God. And I would submit to you this morning, we're in a state of slumber, insensibility, but that's not all. In a state of slumber, there is this idea of illusions, dreams. When you're sleeping, dreams. Dreams are weird. They're weird. They're they're not real. I don't know why this is, but, but my wife has this reoccurring dream, like often, that we are dating as kids again, which was like I was 12 years old. And in her dream, I'm always the guy who breaks up with her. And and so she wakes up in the morning, and by the way, she broke up with me twice. And then I stalked her and hunted her down, and finally, attrition won the day. <laughs> but she wakes up in the morning, and she comes down and tells me, and then she's mad at me. Like, I broke up with her in this dream. That's not reality. And we do this in the state of sleep. It's not real. We have crazy thoughts. Like we begin to doubt what is real. Like the God of heaven, the Son, the Spirit. His love for me, his acceptance of me, his character, his goodness. We begin to doubt ourselves if if he doesn't care, if he doesn't love me, if I just blew it. Or even our own self-esteem where we think we are rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. It's not reality either. There's a state of illusions. Then there's the state of inaction. Listen, when we're laying on the sofa, on the bed, and swinging like a door on the hinges, nothing is getting done. In this state of slumber, we are inactive for the kingdom. And work is to be done. Kingdom work and work in general. Hey, friend, just a a little side note. Um, In our world today, after the last two years, people don't want to work. There's no motivation to work. Can I tell you something? We were created to work. We were created to be creative. We were created to take chaos and turn it into order. Do you know why? Because that's what God does. And we're supposed to take whatever our area of influence is, whether it's at a job, in our homes, in community, we're to work. And when I'm sleeping, I'm inactive. Nothing is getting done. Nothing is getting done in real life or in the kingdom. And finally, there's a state of insecurity. When you're sleeping, you are most vulnerable. We, we had one child in our family, and I, I won't name him this morning because he, um, he's sitting in the front row, and, um, <laughs> and has two daughters. And, and so Kim and I would go to bed, and somewhere in the middle of the night, Gregory would get up, and, he'd, and being kind, I think not wanting to disturb us, would sneak into our room and stand at the edge of our bed <laughs> for hours. And he would stare at us, waiting for us to move. That is freaky weird. 
That's, is it not? Have you ever, and you know when you're sleeping, you feel or sense like, oh my goodness, I feel weird, it's weird, and then you go, ah, there's a kid standing here. We are the most vulnerable when we are sleeping. We have no idea the danger of that child lurking around our bed. Right? And if you ever doubt that you're in danger, just look at the Bible. Sisera, if you know the story, thought it would be great to take a nap in J.L.'s tent. Little did he know there was a tent peg with his name on it. Samson thought it was a good idea to sleep in the lap of Delilah. And that didn't turn out well for him either. We are in a state of danger. And, and we can liken this to sleep, but I'm telling you, spiritually, many of us, if not all of us, are here. Spurgeon preached that message, and, and he says in there that there was an evening when the congregation came in. They, they would have morning service, then have dinner, like right after, and then come back. And he said there was one evening where the, the congregation came back after too much food, is what he said. As they gathered in the congregation, they were sleepy. You know how that is. Good big meal. Oh, my goodness. Uh, they sat down, and you could tell. It was like, lights out, baby. We're in church. And they were... And so Spurgeon, with all of his passion and all of his volume, got in the pulpit with this slumbering crowd and said, fire, fire, fire! And they all jumped up and they were scattered, like, where's the fire? And here's what he said. He said, um, in hell for such sleepy sinners as you were. Now listen, when I do this, don't be mad at me. I'm not screaming fire. Church, wake up. Wake up. There is too much at stake. Only one life, and it will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. I did a funeral years and years ago. And uh, it wasn't someone from our church. I did a funeral, and so I tried to gather information about the individual. They were over 90, 90 years old. And everyone that I talked to said the same thing. This individual was a wonderful garage sailor. They went garage sailing all the time. Listen to me. I, I, you go garage sailing all the time, that's great. But if you're on a planet for 90 plus years, and the only thing you've done is gone garage sailing, I submit to you, you've wasted your life. And many of us this morning are wasting our lives. We're wasting, we're sleeping and wasting our lives. Not only are we not engaged in the battle against temptation and striving for holiness, we're just not engaged in any part of life. We're in a culture who is sleeping and being entertained by social media, endless scrolling and mindless, art, mindless articles, and, and we're going to live and die and never make an impact for anything or anyone, let alone the kingdom of Christ. Church, wake up. Wake up. So, here's a practical plan now. And this is where we're going to be for several weeks. And so, we're going to work our way through this. What does it mean to watch? What does it mean to be alert? Here's the first thing we'll talk about. Number one, we have to realize our own sinful hearts. If we're going to watch about temptations that we face, we must realize our own sinful hearts. Your heart. And my heart, 
Not your wife's heart, not your kid's heart, not your parents' heart, not the pastor's heart, your heart. We must realize our own sinful heart. And here's what we all do in some way. I would never do that. That is, I, I would never do that. You better be careful. I heard a guy this was last week say, before I got married, I had six theories about raising kids. And they said, now I'm married, I have six kids and no theories. <laughs> right? We in our home have been without, we, we've not had a pet in our home for 35 years. 35 years. And don't, I don't want to hear your speech. I don't care about your speech. Whatever you think about me. 35 years, no pet. So we got a dog. We got a dog. And so Kim said, we need a dog. Okay, we need a dog. So we get this dog. And it's like, hey, before he comes home, just three rules, right? Number one, no people food. He's a dog. It's not good for them. They eat dog food. So no people eat dog food. I don't want him begging at the table, right? Not doing that. Number two, keep him off the furniture. Like, there's carpet. There's a floor. Lay on it. You're a dog, right? Makes sense. And number three, never, ever be in bed. That's not, not jumping on the bed. That's ridiculous. We've had the dog for a year and a half now. <laughs> and Kim is sleeping on the sofa, and the dog is in bed. <laughs> right? We've got to be honest with our hearts and our own deception within. Right? Um, you don't need to turn there, but there's a story in the Old Testament. One of the old one that knew that I think will help us here. Um, I don't know if you remember the story about Elijah, the prophet, but um, the king of Syria was sick, and he sent his number one general, Haziel, um, to go and find out if he's going to recover. So Haziel finds um, Elijah and says, hey, will my master cover, recover? And he says, yes, the king will recover. And then he stops, and Elijah stares at him for a little bit and says, the Lord has just revealed to me that he will not recover. And um, then he stares at Haziel for a long time, and he becomes uncomfortable. And Elijah the prophet says to this messenger, you are going to kill our young men, rip open the bellies of our pregnant women, and cause incredible atrocities in Israel. And this Syrian general says, am I a dog? How, why would you say that? Am I a dog that I would ever do these things? And then Elijah says, the Lord has revealed that you will be the next king of Syria. So he leaves. He tells the king of Syria, you will recover. And the next day, he takes a blanket, wets it, and suffocates him. Am I a dog? Yeah, you're a dog. Because the greed and ambition of your heart took over, and you did something that you you thought you would never do. Let me give you a New Testament example. Ever hear of a guy named Peter? Listen, Peter was impetuous. Peter said dumb, stupid things. But the night which he said to Jesus, I will never, I will never betray you. I will never deny you. You better believe Peter was sincere. With all of his being, Jesus, I would never do that. And yet the fear, the crowd, his self-confidence, he did. He did. We must not be arrogant or dishonest about our own hearts. There's weakness within. Owen tells a story about um, the weakness of treachery. 
And it gives the, the picture of a, of a castle that's fortified. I mean, the gates are down, the moat is around it, you know, everything's closed up. And then he says this, within a fortified castle with treachery, which means there's an enemy within, it will fall. Fortified, there's an enemy within. And I submit to you this morning, we have met the enemy, and it's us. Our hearts are deceptive. You can't trust them. John MacArthur says, he uses this phrase, we must have a self-distrust of our hearts. Realize our own sinful hearts. So how do we do that? Let me give you three quick things, and we're going to close it out. Number one, we must rely on God to prove or test our hearts. Rely on God to prove or test our hearts. Psalm 139, we read the first half of this earlier. Look at the end, verse 23. David speaking. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my uh, thoughts, my cares, my anxieties, and see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So here's David, a man after God's own heart, who says, God, you search, you try my heart. Now listen to me. This searching is not so God knows what's going on in David's heart. The first verse that we read this morning from that text, God says, David says, O Lord, you have searched me and you have known me. This search is not for God to figure out what's going inside myself. The search is for me. And David says, God, I'm going to lay myself open and bare before you. I want you to prove. I want you to test my heart. I need to know. And the truth is, most of us don't want to know or care to know. But you need to know. And then David says, and as you search and as you try and as you reveal, lead me. The idea is, when I'm exposed, God, I will say yes to you. I will obey you. I will do whatever it takes as you prove my heart. Show me. Listen, the God of heaven, is, of heaven is living and active. And when we ask, he will show us. If we seek truth, we will find it. And so the, the first thing we have to do is we have to allow God to prove our hearts. All right? Number two, we must read the word of God to pierce and protect our hearts. Hebrews 4.12 for the word of God is quick and powerful, living and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, and of joints and marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Listen, we, we ask God to prove our hearts, but we read the word to pierce and protect our hearts. It knows what's happening inside. And as we read, Scripture does two wonderful things. First, it gives us examples. We read the Word of God because we see examples of men and women, teenagers, just like us, to learn from. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse number 6. Now these things, Paul speaking to the Corinthian church, became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after the evil things as they lusted. We need the word of God to prove and protect, or pierce and protect our hearts. If you've been reading through the Bible, and you came across the children of Israel wandering in the wilderness, there's a reoccurring theme, and it's this. They're stupid. They're really stupid. Time and time again, God has been faithful and provided, and they keep 
on complaining. And I read that and I think, you people are stupid. Complaining, complaining, complaining until I take one second to stop and think of my own life and the example I see and match it up and have to say to myself, Rick, you're stupid. You're complaining. You're grumbling. And and we say griping. Our kids say griping. It gives us examples. We go to the New Testament. Failure after failure after failure. The, the disciples of Jesus, every one of them failed. So how in the world do we live this life thinking, won't happen to me? The word of God pierces our heart in such a way as we see the examples. And the idea is this, let every man and woman be your teacher. Life is too short to make all the mistakes yourself. And you should see the examples in Scripture where men and women had, were faced with a challenge and you watch how they, they, they manipulated, uh, they made excuses, they thought they were strong enough, and they failed. So the Word of God pierces our heart by the examples. And then it's to protect our heart through um, a stockpile. Look at um, Psalm 119. You know these verses. Verse number 9. How can a young man cleanse his ways? By taking heed or, or guard it. Guard your way, your life, according to your word. Knowing the word of God helps me keep my way, my walk, my life to navigate through this world, especially in the face of temptation. Can I be so bold to say, and I will, we are biblically illiterate. We know more today about Johnny Depp than Jesus Christ in his word. We're consumed by it. We're consumed about the latest and the greatest and what's happening in Hollywood, which doesn't mean anything to any of our lives. We are biblically illiterate. And when it comes um, to living out the Christian life, God has given us the word of God, uh, his word, to act as a guardrail. A guardrail. I take the word of God and I hide it in my heart. It guards it. Some of us think, I have grace and grace is amazing. And so I'm free. I can do whatever I want. Your freedom and my freedom is not to do whatever I want. I almost always want to do the wrong thing. The Word of God gives us freedom to live the way we were designed to live. And to be truly free means I live in the guardrails that God has given me. Listen, a train is really free when it's on the tracks. Guardrails. And once it's off the track, guess what? It ain't free. It's devastated. We have these guardrails to protect us. And the Bible gives us those principles. I'm I'm not going to take the time this morning. There are three verses I would have talked about today. I'm going to skip these verses because I know we're... we're, But 1 Corinthians chapter 6, chapter 8, and chapter 10, um, Paul is writing to a messed up church. And he's giving them Bible principles to help them stay on course. I'll just give you three. We won't look at them. You can, if you want to flash them. The, the one, how do I know if it's right or wrong in my life? Is it helpful? Paul says, all things are lawful for me. All things don't edify. Is it helpful? Helpful for me physically, spiritually, emotionally. Does it bring me under the power or influence of anything? Alcohol, drugs, pornography. Then your answer is you don't do it. Does it hurt other believers? Am I practicing the law of love in 1 Corinthians 8, 13? And does it glorify God? These things are guardrails in our lives. It's not rocket science. It's, look at the word of God. It's there to pierce our hearts and convict us, and then to be a guardrail and then a guarantor.
the guarantor. Psalm 119, verse 11 says, Your word have I hidden in my heart, that I might not sin against you. A guarantor is a person or thing that acts as a guarantee, a vouch, it vouches for, or supports us. This is the word of God. Can I say something to you this morning? When all of us, as we talk about the temptations that we deal with and the sin that so easily traps us or besets us, I don't need to name yours this morning. You already know what it is. And if you don't, see me afterwards, I'll tell you what it is. Okay? And here we are, we have these things that we know we're always trapped in, and yet we never take the word of God and hide it in our hearts to vouchsafe for us, to support us. If you're angry this morning, you're always angry. I mean, always angry. Then maybe, just maybe, a good idea to learn James chapter 1, verse 19. Let every man, every person, be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, because the wrath of God does not work the righteousness, or the wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God. He that is soon angry deals foolishly. Do you know why I have those verses memorized? Because you people make me angry. I'm angry. It's in there. You have a problem with irritability. You're always upset about something. 1 Peter 4, 8. That love covers a multitude of sin. I'm not seeing human souls like I should. If you're out of control in any area of your life, Proverbs 25, 28. Whoever has no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. If you struggle with lust, unthankfulness, anxiety, there's an app for that called the Word of God. And we expect to have victory or at least obedience in these areas where this is a problem for me and I've never taken the Word of God to hide it in my heart so the Spirit of God can bring it to my mind to, to take the next step of obedience. Finally this morning, as we look to realizing our own hearts, we allow God to prove it. We allow the Word of God to pierce it and protect it. And then finally, we run to the person of Christ. We must run to the person of Christ. Hebrews chapter 4. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness. God knows your weakness and my weakness. And he doesn't just know as God. He knows because he walked among us in flesh. But was in all, all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come Boldly. Boldly. Not terrified. Not with our heads down again. Not I blew it again. How could you even? To come boldly. Oh God, here I am. I'm back. I sinned. I blew it. We have this idea that because he's holy, his holiness will push me away from him. That's not our Savior. His holiness does not push us away from him. It pulls him toward us. When people in the New Testament were unclean, ceremonially and physically, Jesus never shied away from them. He touched them. And when he touched them, he didn't become unclean. They became clean. Brother and sister, we run to him and find his longing, his love, and his tenderness towards us. He doesn't think, oh, you're bizarre, you're uncommon, you're weird, you're yucky, ew. He doesn't do that. 
He says, come unto me. All you that labor and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, gentle and lowly of spirit, and you will find rest for your souls. We run to Jesus. There's a song that came through my head when I was finishing this up the other day. It's an older song you, you might know, but I think it speaks the truth of what we're talking about this morning as we close out. Weak and wounded sinner, lost and left to die. Oh, raise your head, for love is passing by. My friend, this morning, if you don't know Christ, I say to you, lift up your head. Love has passed by. The God of heaven became flesh and died on a cross for you, for your sin, for your filth, for your wickedness, for your brokenness, for your addiction, for, for, for all of it. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Look to Jesus. So come to Jesus, come to Jesus and live. Now your burdens lifted and carried far away and precious blood has washed away the stain. Then sing to Jesus, sing to Jesus and live. And like a newborn baby, don't be afraid to crawl. And remember when you walk, sometimes you fall. So fall on Jesus. Fall on Jesus and live. The song continues, but I think that makes the point this morning. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray this morning that we would not just hear with our ears, but you'd open our hearts to the areas in our life that we know we, we must do business with you. And so, God, I pray that even during this invitation, as we, as we sing the songs to uplift Christ, we would begin the work of doing business with you, allowing you to prove our hearts, allowing your word to pierce and protect it, and then, Lord, running to the person of Christ. We need this. Lord, we'll need this this afternoon. We'll need it tomorrow. We'll need it next week. We'll need it as we walk this planet. So we ask that you'd help us. In Jesus' name, amen. you join me in standing this morning as we conclude our service with an old hymn. Um, oh, that's not. This is a newer hymn, and it's a good one. So praise the Lord. It's a good one. All right, let's do this then. I was told something differently. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about what you've just heard or are interested in the ministry of Maple City, please visit our website at maplecitybaptistchurch.com.